Acts family. Welcome to Four Lurks, <laughs> Four Looks from Acts 20, Part 3. Uh, turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, if you're not already there. This is our final message from Paul's uh, talk with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. And, and not everybody that's here today has been here for the last two weeks. And so um, I just want it, to, it's good for us to be on the same page, right, with the bulletin insert. And so once again, I'm going to read through this full passage for context, but I'd really like for you guys to read along in your Bibles, and after that we'll do a, a quick recap of the last couple of weeks, very quick, and then we'll jump into this week. So I'm going to go here in Acts 20, we're going to start in verse, you know, I put 27, is it 27 or is it 17? Yeah, okay, I wrote it wrong. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Everybody there? All right. This is uh, the English standard. Yeah, when, when, uh, when Ron started doing the communion meditation, and you were reading in, in, uh, in Romans 1, and I knew that the, the Textus Receptus has that extra part of the verse, and I leaned over and said, he's reading for the New King James. And Shannon goes, he already said that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Sorry. I was so impressed with myself for knowing that. And then, yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I... Do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I will testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Not, sharing, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. 
And remember the word of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Father God, we ask in Jesus' precious name that you will help all of our hearts to be engaged this morning. Let our minds be open and ready to receive what you have for us. May we be good soil. We pray that the word that is implanted in us will take root, will bear fruit, and will produce something grand and glorious for your kingdom's sake. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if, if you have the bulletin insert and you'd like to fill in the stuff uh, from the last couple of weeks, here they are. The first week was titled, Look at Me, and we learned that Christians must strive to live in the open where people can see us, make a good first impression by taking what you say and do seriously, serve God with humility, that one's pretty self-explanatory, but it's great, persevere, in difficulty, as opposed to being negative or whiny. Be bold about God's truth. Teach repentance alongside faith. Because biblical faith does include the change of mind and subsequent behavior. And prioritize God's will above all else, including our own will. And then last week, we talked about both looking inwardly and outwardly. And that passage taught us that Christians must strive to keep a clean conscience or a clear conscience, not only by avoiding sin, but also trying to say and do what God leads you to say and do. We should declare the whole counsel of God rather than fixate on one or two things. His word is very deep. And there's a lot that we need to share with people that we're discipling. Remember what Jesus said. He said, make disciples. And then how did he tell us to do it? He says, first of all, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But what's the second thing? Teaching them to what? To observe, to obey, to keep everything that I have taught you. There's a lot there. We should carefully watch both ourselves and our flock, meaning those that God has, has given us the the, the, the people to provide for and, and to protect and to guide in, in their own spiritual journey. And we zealously guard our hearts to prevent failure in this. We should, in, we should expect danger, even from within the professing church. That, that's something that's kind of scary when you think about it. But the Bible's very clear about that. And stay alert to keep from falling prey to false teachers and false doctrines. And then lastly, we should pour into others. That means invest yourself in others, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. I'm going to give you all a few more seconds if you're taking notes. So go ahead and fill that in so that you'll be ready for today. This week, we're going to focus on the final look in our text, and it's simply to look up. Look up, starting in verse, whoa, almost dropped that one. Starting in verse 32. And now, Paul says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, 
which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, as usual, there's a lot here to digest, but I, I think that the first and maybe the most important point that we can get from Paul's words, because all the other points rely on this one, is that we must trust God. This is one of those really, really basic things. Some people don't need to take notes on this, but I suggest you do anyway, because this is the whole gist of what we have to do as Christians. You can't be a Christian unless you trust God. You cannot be saved unless you trust God. When Paul says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, that reveals a strong reliance on the loving kindness of God that he will take care of his own. Now, what do you think he means by the word of his grace? Anybody have an idea? You know, for most of the commentaries that I looked at, it's intended to mean the gospel of Jesus Christ. If, if, not, if not a reference to Christ as the word himself, it may be both. This gospel is the good news that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, be buried and rise from the dead. And all of this, including his resurrected son, all of this was seen by eyewitnesses. And when a person believes this and places faith in this, this Jesus, his sins are forgiven and his life is transformed. And this is how the gospel builds us up. It's not only when we first believe, but for the rest of our lives, the gospel continues to edify us and build us up, provided that we maintain that faith. And it is this faith which results in the inheritance that Paul mentions. We are justified upon believing, friends. And then we see that the Holy Spirit sanctifies those who are justified as this passage concludes. Those who are in Christ should enjoy that assurance that comes from seeing the Holy Spirit working in us and working through us because experiencing sanctification, listen, I want you to hear this. If you ever struggle about your own salvation, listen, experience sanctification in your life and what you're doing there is seeing evidence of having been justified. Does that make sense? If you are seeing the sanctification of the Holy Spirit working in your life, that is solid evidence that you have been justified by faith. However, it is God's promises and especially maybe his power to save, that should be our primary reason that we entrust ourselves to him. Because, because even as we're being sanctified, we fail. Amen? Amen? You mess up? Yeah? Every day? I've probably sinned since I came up here. I mean that. We are messed up, people. But we need Jesus Christ, and thank God he, he's given to us. And so let's, let's keep this in mind. We are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God that lives in us. But it's God's capability and God's character that should be our primary reason to trust Him. Not even, not even what we're seeing in our own lives necessarily because God is the one that's faithful. Now, 
I'm going to say this this way. Any certainty of salvation rests on God, and that's not just our own salvation. Now, this, this is important, so stay with me, okay? Don't tune me out here. If we have to trust God to keep us in the palm of his hand, should we not also trust him with others? Just think about that for a second. When Paul says, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, you know, it reveals to it. We, we understand this. Paul had a deep, deep love for these people. He really cared about them. He was invested in them. And it's instructive that he is turning them over to God. And I want to share this with you parents especially. There will come a time if there hasn't already, when you are raising a child or when that child has left the nest and you have to say, Lord, this is your child. I have the privilege of uh, once or twice a week when Shannon's at work, I come up to the school to pick up Evie and I get to talk to Dana for a while outside while our, our kids play. And, and she told me the other day, Jacob was, came over and gave her a hug and then ran off and she said, it's the longest breakup in history, you know, just watching your little boy grow up. And it, when, you, when you have so much invested in these kids and you love them so dearly, it is hard to let them go. It's hard to turn them over to God. But that, friends, is our only hope. You understand that. You can't make their decisions for them. You can't have faith for them. You can have faith, you can try to impart that faith in them, but it is God who takes care of your children. So you have to say, Lord, this is your child. I gave birth to him, or I raised her, or whatever the case may be, but ultimately this is your kid. I am turning him over to you. I am entrusting you with her future. And it's a similar mental process that we have to go through when making disciples. And that's what Paul is doing here. And, and listen, this is important. He's not telling these Ephesian elders, I give up on you. He's telling them, I'm giving you up to God. Very different. Very different. When I was going through a very rebellious period in my life, my parents told me that they had to, both for me and my sister, they had they had to turn us over to God. They said, Lord, we can't control them. We can't, we can't get them to do what's right. We turn them over to you. And at least my sister turned out okay. <laughs> it took a lot of faith for them to do that because what they were seeing was not the fruit of salvation in our lives, and yet God brought us around because God is faithful, friends. You know, Paul's presence, his, his whole influence apart from the Holy Spirit would mean nothing. And the Holy Spirit didn't need Paul. Do you understand that? He did not need Paul to keep doing the work in those people because God started the work and God is faithful to complete the work. Philippians 1, what? Somebody. <laughs> I don't know the answer. That's why I'm asking. Is it 1-6, Craig? 
I don't know, you know? You don't know? Philippians somewhere in there it says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God doesn't need you or me. God chooses to work through you. He chooses to work through me. So we must, we must look up and trust God, not only with our own salvation and our own growth in the Spirit, but we entrust Him with the salvation and the growth of others as well. we got to be willing to do that, friends. So we also see in this passage that we look up to the future blessing which is promised to those who are in Christ. And that's the inheritance that Paul is referring to, okay? Whoever is in Christ, this is such a cool statement. Jesus said this himself in John 6. Whoever, actually it's John 5, excuse me. Whoever is in Christ, he said, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Has. Present tense. If you're in Christ, it doesn't start when you die. You have eternal life. Now, on a side note, we will, we will also experience rewards in heaven based on what we have done here in this life. And, and this, is, this is interesting. We don't talk about this very often, I think. And I, I think, honestly, this ought to be more of a motivation to us than it is. I mean, is it that our faith is just too immature? Or is it simply we don't think about it? Or is it just it's not taught enough? I don't know. But listen, the Bible says clearly that we will be rewarded according to our deeds. Now, that's, that is not talking about entering heaven because salvation is a free gift it's a gift of God as we discussed this morning at length it's a gift of God by grace through faith it is not based on our works so that no one may boast okay entering heaven justification is a free gift of God but when we're in heaven the rewards that we receive there will be according to what we've done with what we've been given. Now, we don't hear about this very much, okay? Jesus talked about it a few times, though. And you look in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talked about it pretty openly. Now, I'm not preaching a whole lot on that right now. I'm just, I want to draw your attention to it, okay? Now, like anybody else, I will be thankful to be in heaven, period. You know, whatever job I have when I get there. I'll be thankful to be there. And I know that my presence there will be entirely predicated on Christ's performance, not mine. Praise God. Okay? But Ephesians 2 also tells us that we were saved in order to do good works. So verse 10 is about. The Father prepared those good works in advance for us to do. So it would be terrible to forget that God has called all of us to be good stewards. We can't set that aside. We have a role. So let, let's not bury the talent is what I'm saying, okay? Nonetheless, friends, for, for those who are in Christ Jesus, listen, we will never have to undergo the wrath of Almighty God that has been reserved for unrepentant sinners. Praise God. Instead, we get to reign with Him. We get to rule with him in his kingdom. Friends, it is a great king who would redeem his enemies and call them not just subjects, but sons. We're going to spend eternity basking in his light and love and glory. And if we believe that, it really ought to be a motivating factor in our lives today. 
As uh, Kayla read it earlier this morning, I actually, I wrote Ron. I'm looking over at you. I wrote Ron, but you did the communion meditation. It was Kayla that read it. So she said, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's from Colossians 3. When we do this, we are reminded of our inheritance that's in him. It's looking up. Let's keep going from verse 33. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Friends, what is coveting? I heard jealousy, desiring, wanting, a sin. Good call. (laughs) It's interesting. I I think we tend to conflate jealousy and envy. Um, God is a jealous God, and there is a sense in which jealousy is absolutely appropriate, but it has to be in the right circumstances. And here's what I mean by that. You can only be jealous of that which is yours. Otherwise, it's envy. Okay? I have a lovely wife. If some guy comes over and starts flirting with her, I get jealous, and that is completely righteous. It is inappropriate for him to do that. God is jealous for his glory. He is jealous for his people. The Bible says his name is jealous. God is jealous for what belongs to him. Envy is wanting something that does not belong to you. That's a very different thing. Just something to to consider. A good definition for coveting might be envying or inappropriately desiring something or someone that does not belong to you. You want that thing or that person for yourself. And we don't use that word very often in normal society, but a close word that almost everybody understands and uses and knows the meaning of is the word greed. So we're going to use that, okay? Greed is never being satisfied with what you have and lusting for more of what you don't have. It's always wanting more and more. Now, from Paul's example, first of all, we can see that Christians ought to reject and refuse covetousness or greed which is intimately connected to idolatry. In fact, referring back to that very same passage of Colossians 3, uh, I'm going to turn there right quick, and I'd like to encourage you to turn there in your Bibles because it will not be on the screen um, if you want to read along with me. Colossians 3, Paul says this. I'm going to start in, uh, I think it's right after, I think it's verse 5. Let me look here. Um, it says, this says why we ought to set our hearts and minds on things above, because it says we will one day appear in glory with Christ, okay? He goes on to say this in the very next verse, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, it means inappropriate passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. When you covet, you are placing something ahead of God on the throne in your heart. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you once walked also when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And then he goes through a list of things that need to be put away. It's idolatry because the Lord is intended to be our heart's desire. He has has stated this. He is the thing that we should want. And if we put something else in that place, whether things, people, 
possessions, whatever, then it says on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. That's a big deal. We must not be idolatrous. There's an extremely similar statement that's made in Ephesians 5, and it's got even harsher language. I'm going to ask you to flip back. That's just a few pages, like five or six pages probably. Flip back to Ephesians 5. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. This next one is the one that just gets me. Every time I read it, I, I just think about how far... I fall short of this. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And that gets into the scary part. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Did you hear that? Did you catch that? He goes on to say, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I mean, that's in your face. So if you are living in any sort of sexual immorality or impurity or idolatry, covetousness, stop it. You think God takes this seriously? Do you? (laughs) Okay, I do too. So do you think maybe we ought to take it seriously? Yeah, I think so. We all know what the Bible teaches about sexual immorality, but we shouldn't forget that impurity of speech and covetousness, which are are idolatry, those are mentioned in the same passages. And all three of these are rampant in today's society, but what's worse is that they're prevalent in the church, at least the professing church. Of the three, I I think that the greed might be the most pernicious. And by that I mean it's probably the most easily hidden and the least often called out, at least in, in America. I mean, we've gotten to the place where materialism is just a part of our lives. We don't even see it anymore. We don't realize how rich we are. Coveting coveting what doesn't belong to us leads to a lot of terrible things. It leads to stealing. It leads to adultery. It leads to murder. Okay, And yet, it starts with simple discontent. There's a reason Jesus warned about materialism and money and stuff more than anything else that he warned us about. There's also a reason that Paul told Timothy, he said, if we have food and clothing, with this we'll be content. It's it's not healthy to place another person or another thing on that throne in our hearts where God belongs. And Paul Paul wanted these people to remember that that he he was never desiring anything from them except for them to turn to Christ and be discipled. That's all he wanted. And he he was pouring himself into these people while providing for himself. You know, he, he, was, he, was, he was doing this ministry to be able to, to give them Christ. And from this, we get our next point. If we follow Paul's example, we know we ought to work hard for Christ. We ought to work hard for Jesus Christ. Now, friends, 
I debated a little bit how deeply to go into this one, and it seems like there's at least one thing to cover on this, okay? I'm guessing that most of us here in this room are not called to vocational ministry, okay? But I want to point out that vocational ministry as we have it today didn't exist at this time. Not yet. Not in the same way. And Paul does make it clear later in Scripture that that there are those who have a right to make their living from the gospel, okay? But as far as we know, Paul himself never took payment from any church that he was presently working for. He either raised support through another church in another area, like in modern-day missions, or else he worked a regular job. You know, he tent making is what we call it. With Paul, much of his ministry was organic, and that he made disciples by interacting with people during his day-to-day activities, you know, going and speaking sometimes in public places. And that's exactly what any of you can do. All of you are capable of this. All Christians need to be aware that we are all ministers in our own right. Do you know that? Some of us are blessed to make a living doing it, praise God, but, but every Christian is called to minister in some way. The Bible literally says we are a kingdom of priests. And based on the writings of, of Paul and John and George and Ringo, no, I'm kidding, Paul and John and, and Jude and the author of Hebrews, every Christian is rightfully called a saint. If that hasn't already clicked for us, we need, we need to stop compartmentalizing our lives into the sacred and the secular. You understand that? You know, our, our entire being is consecrated to God. You know that, right? So when you fix a car, or you, you cook a meal for your sick neighbor, or you pray for your friend, or you, you go to class, or you do someone's taxes, or, or you drop your kid off at practice, whatever, do it for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10 has a very well-known verse, and I always forget whether it's 13 or 31, because they're both well-known verses, and I mix them up pretty much every time. But one of those two says, in everything you do, do it as, for, as working for, excuse me, in everything you do, do it for the glory of God. And then Paul even told people that live in indentured servitude, he said, do everything as working for the Lord and not for man. And I think that's powerful. I mean, everything, right? Every, when, when we eat, you know, uh, instead of just eating for pleasure, you know they used to call that solitary gourmanding? I was kind of thinking about that when I was up and I was reading, I was, it was late, the kids had gone to bed, Shannon was already in bed, and I was stuffing my face while I was, reading this book that was written by a Puritan. And I want to say the book was um, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. But anyway, intense book. But he talked about solitary gourmanding. I was like, what is that? And I looked it up, and it's basically just sitting off by yourself eating for pleasure. And I was like, oh, I'm so guilty of that. Oh, my goodness. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically mention that, but it is kind of interesting. So instead of just eating for pleasure, let's remember we are fueling vessels for God's mercy. That's what we're doing. We're putting gas in the car so God can drive it around and serve. You know, and, and when, we, when we rest, 
we should remember that we're recharging the batteries of a ministry machine to better serve the king. I got a friend, you know, you guys probably met him. Some of you met him. He came here a few times a while back. Name is Jesse. And he was a youth pastor at a church, and they had a blue church van. And he decided he was going to put big flower decals on the side of the van, and he painted it like the Scooby-Doo van that says the ministry machine <laughs> instead of the mystery machine. I thought that was awesome. But, but that's, that's what we're supposed to do. We get rest so that we can serve God better. If you view everything that you do as unto the Lord, which it is, right? If you see it that way, then it gives you a different perspective and you find deeper purpose in things that used to seem mundane. You know, for the Christian, there's a sense in which everything is sacred. It all has meaning. Every moment of your day has meaning. All right, we're going to pick back up at verse 35. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Okay, now some of you already know this because you were here on Wednesday night. And I mentioned this Wednesday night. But before we dig into this, I got to tell you something weird but cool, okay? When Paul quotes Jesus there, this is the only place in the Bible that we find it. You understand that? He's quoting Jesus as saying something specific, and this is the only place in the Bible where we see it. It's in the Word of God as having been spoken by Jesus, so we know it's God-breathed. But I think it's interesting that this saying itself doesn't show up in any of the Gospels. And that, my friends, is a pretty stark reminder that there's a whole lot of stuff that Jesus said and did that isn't in the Bible. I mean, if you, if you look at the very last verse of John's Gospel, it says, now there are many other things that Jesus did. And he says, were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. So, so listen, don't let it throw you for a loop that Paul is quoting Jesus as saying something that we, we don't read him saying in the Gospels. Instead, let's consider how cool it is that God would include it later as a flashback, so to speak, you know? I think that's neat. Anyway, so what's Paul saying here? He didn't just work to take care of himself. He also helped to take care of other people who were in need. And he refers to them as the weak. Now, um, this, the Greek word for weak means to be feeble in pretty much any sense. You know how when somebody's really sick, y'all East Texas folk will say they're feeling puny? That's kind of what he means. Okay? You could be diseased. You could be sick in some way. You could be uh, powerless. I, could even, I think it might even apply to someone that has been disenfranchised. Okay? He is, he's setting an example for us that Christians need to strive to give to others, and especially those in need. Now, I want you to stick with me on this for a minute, okay? He is not saying that we ought to give money to a politician to spread it around to people who could work but don't. That is not what he's saying. That's actually a very unbiblical concept. To help the weak means either to offer support to a person who is desperately in need and can't help themselves, or it means to physically pitch in and help someone do something that they may not be physically capable of doing on their own. Okay? We're talking about people in real need. 
Not just people that are having a hard time choosing between cigarettes or the cable bill. Okay, that's, that's not what we're talking about. Okay? The kind of people that Joyson's ministry supports are a stellar example of people who are truly in need. I mean, we're talking about children with almost no clothing that live in cardboard shanties. Some of them eat once a day, and that's because Joyson and his people provide it. They can use help, and we can offer that. You know, friends, God, God is going to bless you for helping with that truck. I want you to know that. And I'm not talking about, you know, financial blessing necessarily. I'm not Joel Osteen or one of those things. I'm talking about the fact that, that, that God will provide something for you spiritually because you give physically. Way too much has been made of this idea that if you give God X, well, God's going to give you back X, Y in your bank account. It's not what I'm talking about. You may never see those dollars again, but guess what? Your dollar here is worth about 10 bucks over there. And you're changing lives. And the knowledge of that, and knowing that one day in heaven you will be rewarded is pretty awesome. Just, I want to put that out there. I don't, I don't think when, when Jesus said, that, when Jesus made the statement, it's more blessed to give than receive, I don't think he's talking about physical blessings. I think he's talking about what you're doing being pleasing in the eyes of God. And I think we should make more of an effort, church, to give to those in need regularly. And sometimes I know it's done through the church when we give, but you can do it in your own daily lives as well if you're not already. You know, look for people that you see that have a real need and see how you can help them meet that need. Um, when we do this, we experience the joy of generosity. And this is important enough that, that Paul apparently ended his speech with this quote from Jesus, that is more blessed to give than to receive. And really, if you think about it, when we give, we're following Jesus, who, again, is the one that we look to for our ultimate example. So, all right, these, these last two verses, or last few verses, um, through the end of the chapter, these are a description of what happened as Paul prepared to leave again. And we're, we're going to start here at verse 36. Um, this is pretty much the scene that served as our PowerPoint background for the last three Sundays. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. There are, um, there, there are two final and, and very important points to consider here. Uh, the first is shown by Paul, and the second actually is shown by the Ephesian elders. Um, one of the most important ways that we can look up is through prayer. One of the most important ways that we can look up is through prayer. When we pray, if we do it properly, we are focusing our attention heavenward, even if our posture is kneeling. We're focusing upward. And that's, you know, Paul and the elders were kneeling. But their attention was up. They were looking up. 
You ever wonder what the prayers of an apostle would be like? I'll bet they were pretty awesome. You know, probably the closest I've ever experienced is praying with Joyson. <laughs> he, he prays with a passion and a power that I, I think most of us are, are just unaccustomed to. Well, in, in this passage, Paul knelt down and prayed with them, and he probably prayed for them, and I'll bet they prayed with him too. They probably prayed for him. The, the, this whole scene is a strong reminder that Christians should pray for one another. I mean, that's real simple, it's real obvious, but we should, we should note that. Christians should pray for one another. And I'm, I'm sure we know this, but it, it's good to consider just how important it is. There are four different letters that Paul wrote where we see him referring to praying for the recipients of that letter. And there are also four different letters where Paul requests that the recipients of the letter pray for him and for his co-workers in the gospel. And the New Testament has two places where we are instructed specifically to pray for one another for physical and spiritual healing. One of them is James 5.16, and the other is, weirdly, 1 John 5.16. In both of those places, we're told to pray for one another, and, and we're given some some great ramifications of that. And of course, there's a general command throughout Scripture to pray for others, including our leaders, even praying for those who persecute us. We're called to this, guys. How much more should we pray for those who are near and dear to us and who are brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, if, if we believe God's Word, which tells us that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, or powerful as it is working, depending on which translation. Why do we hesitate to lift each other up? You know, why don't we do it more often? Might our prayers be what God is waiting for in order to answer us with a resounding yes? You know, could, could he be waiting for us to ask before he gives that unbeliever eyes to see the truth? I mean, could he be waiting for us to ask in order to provide healing from, from that affliction or that addiction? Could he be waiting for us to ask to, to provide for someone's needs? So let's be in prayer for one another and especially be faithful to pray for our supported missions and for Christians who are undergoing persecution. That's in our prayer list. I hope you guys pray through that at least once during the week. We're almost done. I know some of the kids are getting antsy. It's all right. It's all right. We're almost there, okay? Lastly, we see in these verses, some of you adults are too, all right? We see in these verses a deep love between Christian brethren. They were so saddened by his statement that they would never see him again. They wept. It says they even hugged and kissed him. And they went as far with him as they could go. Obviously, they weren't going to get on the ship. They had a church to take care of. But you know, for those of you who don't know, uh, my mom is half Italian. And her main love language is probably physical touch and affection. You know, there's a few people here like Winnie. You're probably one of those. Um, I'm definitely like that. Um, you can't hardly see my mom coming or going 
without her grabbing you, hugging you, and giving you a kiss. And she is a precious lady who, who used to, she still does this, in fact. She comes to the door whenever you're leaving her home, and she'll stand there and wave you off like you're about to travel across the Atlantic on a ship instead of going to Kroger or whatever you're doing, you know, and there, it's not that bad. She, it's usually when we're leaving, leaving, but she, she stands there and waves us off. There's such an undeniable love in the way that my mom relates to people, and, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I think that's how it's supposed to be. Now, I don't mean run alongside the car waving and blowing kisses when your spouse goes to the store, okay? That, that would be bizarre. But we ought to not be afraid to show affection to one another. Now listen, friends, I know this is controversial, especially nowadays, right? When things are often purposely misconstrued. But let's not be afraid to show brotherly love to one another with our words and even affection in the proper context. Okay, listen, brotherly is an important word there when I said brotherly love, okay? Don't be creepy, <laughs> okay? Of course, and, and men and women always need to be careful about how they interact with one another for propriety's sake, you know, in order to be above reproach. That's, that's both biblical and it's just common sense, okay? But God's word contains instructions about how to treat one another. You know, as, as fathers, as brothers, as mothers, and as sisters. And by the way, to that one, Paul adds, with all purity. Treat young women, he says to Timothy, as sisters with all purity. But don't be afraid to hug people or clasp a shoulder or, or especially to verbally express your appreciation to a brother or sister in Christ for what they mean to you or for, for how you've seen the, the Lord working in their life. Don't be afraid to do that. I'll tell you, one of the most common commands in the New Testament is to greet one another with a holy kiss. That shows up four times in Scripture, four different letters. And in our culture, we're more comfortable with, with hugs and handshakes, which, which is probably faithful to the spirit of that command, although I still wonder for being disobedient sometimes. But whatever the case, we shouldn't be afraid to appropriately express affection to our Christian siblings in word and in deed. The day that you do that may be a day that they desperately need that hug on the neck or, or those kind words of affirmation. I'm going to wrap this up by sharing something dumb um, from a Dilbert comic strip. There's this character that's interviewing for a job, and he says, sometimes I pretend to choke in the cafeteria then when someone performs the Heilemelik maneuver on me, I spin around suddenly just to get a hug. <laughs> he didn't get the job because they told him he was overqualified, by the way. Um, that's simultaneously funny and sad. Because there are people in this world that are so starved for brotherly affection and for godly affirmation. And I believe that, that no Christian should ever leave a worship service, a worship gathering like this, feeling unloved, not by God and not by God's people. We should always feel loved when we leave a place like this. So friends, love one another and let one another know that you love one another. Anyway, if you're here this morning and you're wondering whether you're loved by God, I'm going to tell you this, God loved the world, including you, 
in such a, such a way that he sent his only son so that whomever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And if you believe that and you have not given yourself wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ, do it. Do it now. Repent and be baptized according to the word into the forgiveness of sins. Let us, let us rejoice with you in your new relationship with the creator of the universe and with his son. Let us rejoice with you that you belong to the savior of the world. Let us rejoice with you that you're a brother or a sister in Christ. If you're here today and you've already done that, you've already been obedient to that call, then maybe you have something else you need to do. Maybe the Holy Spirit is calling you to do that now, whether it's you know, to, to join this, this church body or whether it's to come forward and ask for prayer and say, I need somebody to come up and put their arm around me and pray for me. We are happy to do that for you, but don't miss the chance.